Hey everyone, this is Josh, host of the Urban Ballard Podcast. Today's guest is retired Marine gunnery sergeant, Mark Tyler. Mark was born in Pennsylvania and raised in Las Vegas. He enlisted in the Marine Corps as a military police officer with hopes of getting into law enforcement after his first enlistment was up. However, Mark enjoyed the Marines so much he decided to make it a career. In this episode, he talks about his deployment experience which entails being on the USS Midway when a Panamanian freighter collided with them, killing two sailors. Mark leaves us with his transition experience after serving 21 years in the military and his journey working for the Department of Justice. If you enjoy this episode, go give us a five-star rating and leave a comment to help support our veterans. The bigger the community, the bigger the impact. If you'd like to contribute your story to Urban Balor or know anyone else who may, reach out on Instagram at Urban Balor TV or you can email me at josh at urbanballer.com. Enjoy the show. My name is Mark Tyler. I served in the United States Marine Corps for 21 years from 1973. I signed up in 73, went active in 74, January 74, retired in January 31st, 1995, retired as a, a gunnery sergeant, turned down the last rank because I didn't want to go back to the desert. <laughs> I went in originally to be an MP because I was gonna go in the Marine Corps, spend four years, get out, go back to Las Vegas where I grew up and be a cop. But I found out that I liked it. And then when I got in right away, they said, oh, well, you, there was confusion. And so they wanted to make me a grunt, which I sort of was for a few months. And then they sent me on over to uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia for MP school. From there, I uh, served a few years as an MP corrections officer, 5,800 and then went on to uh, avionics from there. I was born in Pennsylvania, uh, raised in Las Vegas, Nevada, which was really a fun time as a kid there because Las Vegas, when I grew up, was small. Out on the strip, we had a few gangsters that everybody talks about, and downtown you had a bunch of cowboys. It was a great time to grow up. My family life was a little disoriented. My Mother, a single mother who had a passel of children. I didn't have a lot of uh, structure. She was always working, but I grew up in, in church and that's been my foundation. No matter what, where, when, my foundation has been always in Jesus Christ. And my church wasn't always straight and narrow, but uh, that was that was what got me through so many things and so much. In, in Vegas, it was, like I said, it was a lot of fun growing up. I played football, basketball, baseball, basketball. We were in high school. We were three-time state champions. Great time. Las Vegas was a cowboy town still then. This I'm talking early 60s. And uh, we had Hell Dorado Day Parade. So you could go downtown on Fremont Street. Horses are roaming around people riding horses they'd set up jails and arrest people for wearing a funny hat that's one of the good memories and then in the summer i mean it's 110 115 degrees so you would go to a pool and then as we got a little bit older we would go out onto the strip and we would do some pool hopping at the the uh, hotels until we got caught and we'd get kicked out and go to the next hotel and back then you could hitchhike, you could do all kinds of fun stuff that uh, seemed to be a thing of the past. And then as I got older, like I said, um, I had it fairly easy in school. I, I didn't have any problems with it. And I, since I played sports, my grades always had to be like a B average or something. So I had to maintain that because I want to play sports. There was a lot of fun. My mother was a single uh, mother and we had six kids in the house. She's working all the time. And so things were tight. I, I remember the lights getting turned off power because the bill wasn't paid. I remember moving a lot. When you sign up for the Marine Corps and you fill out all the paperwork, they ask you where you lived. That was about a three or four pages, I think, from the, the places where we lived, some of the schools they went to. And that was difficult. Um, you didn't always have all that you wanted or uh, you thought you wanted. But one thing that's very clear, I was always loved. And that's so important. Two things on the Marine Corps. My brother was a Marine. So that was very important to me. And then uh, in high school, I was an avid reader and I had uh, a book called Battle Cry by Leon Uris. Fantastic book. All of his books are fantastic. 
And I read that book and was highly motivated to join the Marine Corps, be a grunt, go out. And then, of course, you know, I, I grew up in a time when cowboys were king. Uh, John Wayne and and John Wayne played Sergeant, what was it, Sergeant Riker in uh, uh, Iwo Jima. And I was pretty motivated by arts, if you will. I wasn't smart enough to understand <laughs> the difference between uh, reality and fiction. I remember Staff Sergeant Singer going down and talking to him. After I got out of high school, I was, uh, I did a lot of things. I traveled the country for about six months. And then before I joined the Marine Corps, I got married at like uh, 20. I was working for a, a sign company, Young Electric Sign Company, and I was enjoying that. But it was a little lack of, it just wasn't tripping my trigger. And I sat down one day and said, look, these are the options we have. And I've always wanted to, and uh, I knew I could, you know, figure it out. And my wife at the time said, let's, let's make it happen. So I joined the Marine Corps and it was to join the Marine Corps, become an MP, go back to Vegas and live happily ever after, after as a cop. But I found that I really enjoyed the Marine Corps. I really enjoyed the camaraderie. It fulfilled a lot of needs. Honestly, boot camp was a piece of cake. Once I knew I was going to go, before I got in there, I was learning close order drill. I knew all my, the 10 commandments, otherwise known as our general orders. And I was locked and loaded. And everybody remembers the first morning in Marine Corps boot camp, you know, in the middle of the night, you're on the yellow footprints. They rip off your hair like this. Only back then I had hair. You know, you hit the rack about uh, zero three and you're got some idiot yelling at you at 530 in the morning throwing a trash can at you and telling you to put your clothes on and you, you're disoriented and you think, what, what, what on earth possessed me to do this at that point? But uh, that very first day, you know, you start learning what's called knowledge and uh, you learn about the Marine Corps history, traditions, etc. They said, well, we have these uh, general orders. Anybody know any of them? And I stick my hand up and I spouted them off and so from that moment on, I was secretary. I didn't want to be secretary, but I was secretary. Okay, I'm not, I, I don't mean this to all my Marine Corps brothers, but uh, some of y'all aren't as smart as, you know, you're not all that smart. <laughs> so if you could walk and chew gum and, 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 you know, a few simple things, you got these kind of gigs. So mm -hmm. I was secretary. I remember a kid named Ewing. He was a chubby kid, man. <laughs> kind of remind me now in retrospect of John Candy. Is like John Candy and Stripes, mm -hmm. chubby guy. And Staff Sergeant Bizantz, who was our senior drill instructor, one day, Ewing are driving me crazy. Go stand in the corner and just keep an eye on it. Think about it. So about an hour later, he says, Ewing, what do you see in the corner now? Well, sir, it's green still. You know, he just wasn't that bright. He just didn't quite figure it out. And then there was always the guy that, uh, you know, you climb in the rope and you, you ring in the bell, just couldn't get up that rope. Uh -huh. and I, I would laugh. And then the only one time that I had an issue was at the rifle range. One of the, the, the privates dissed me, man, said I missed. And we got in a fight. And that wasn't good. <laughs> I do also remember a lot of fun things. You know, when you're humping uh, the mountains down in Camp Pendleton, I went to San Diego. I was a Hollywood Marine. We all wore sunglasses. And I remember humping the hills and we had a young, a young black kid, Bryant. Man, I can't believe I remember some of these names because that's been 50 years. Eh? He was at the po that point, he was the platoon guide, tall, skinny black kid, nice, nicest young man in the world. But he's running and all of a sudden he turns around, you know, we're running formation. He stops, turns around, and runs as fast as he could. And the, and the drill instructor, get back. What's the matter? And there was a little garden snake that had run in front of him. He was just deathly afraid of that. After that, um, we kept a garden snake, and Bryant was the one who got to feed him <laughs> with the mice that he'd stick in there. I enjoyed it. It was a different time. Drill instructors were, at that point in time, still permitted to touch you. <laughs> Yeah. My favorite story of boot camp, though, as I indicated, I grew up in church, 
was my foundation. And you know that a lot of the troopies would go to church because they wanted a, a break. But I went to church because that's what I did. They'd all come back and, and the drill instructor, <laughs> the drill instructor said, what'd you learn at church? And, and of course, the, the pat answer was Jesus, you know, God, something like that. But I had two drill instructors that asked me, what'd you learn in church? And I said, well, uh, the preacher talked on Matthew 24, where two are lying in bed, one is taken, the other's left behind. Two are working in the field, one is left behind, the other one's taken. And I said, yeah, I have two drill instructors here in front of me, sir. Which one of you will be left behind? They never asked anybody about what they learned in church after that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was fun. I, I don't think they appreciated, but they they really didn't have anything to say. After boot camp, Camp Pendleton, to, to, it was going to be an 0311 because they'd screwed up my orders. But I was only there a short time. And after a couple months, I said, ah, you're supposed to be at Fort Gordon, Georgia for MP school. That was in, sometime in summer of 74, headed out to Fort Gordon, Georgia. And it was great. I loved it. So I grew up in Vegas where it's 115 degrees in the summer and, and the dry heat. Well, you go to Fort Gordon, Georgia, and in the summertime there, it's it's almost as hot, but it's humid. And most young Marines are after they get out of boot camp in great shape. So you run the forest there and it was beautiful and got my first tattoo there, went to the Whiskey A Go-Go. And, you know, so like I said, it wasn't, it wasn't all sunshine and roses, but I went to the Whiskey A Go-Go with an army guy because it was a, a army base. I met a guy, they was, he was singing, his name was Brian Highland. He had a few big hits, uh, Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini and Gypsy Woman and a couple others. And when I got there and he's singing, he's a total stoner now. All the stuff he'd done, you know, was totally bubblegum stuff. But uh, he was a total stoner and we hung out. And this army guy and I, we went after maybe maybe a couple Kool-Aids or something. We didn't drink any beer or anything, I'm sure. But uh, anyhow, we went over and got our tattoos and I got my wife's, I got a little heart, and my wife's name. Well, this guy, as I indicated, most Marines and, and, and Dogface, they're, they're not the, the brightest. He got the same tattoo with the same name. I said, do you know anybody named Nancy? Uh, no. <laughs> so maybe he had a little bit too much Kool-Aid that night. But it was fun because it was easy and I, I was chosen as the platoon guide or whatever. So you, you come away with another meritorious promotion, which was good. And then from there, uh, took a little leave, went back to Vegas, hung out. And then my first real duty station was at 32nd Street in San Diego. It was fun. And I say that in all sincerity, that I think I'm blessed to be a little bit gregarious and outgoing. Check in, you get to know some people. My staff NCO, within a couple of days, he took a few of us newbies out and downtown San Diego. If you're familiar with San Diego now, back in the early 70s, it was totally different. There were bowling alleys, pool halls, massage parlors, and that was about it. And we went to the pool hall and sure enough, Staff Sergeant Lee got in a fight and then <laughs> we're all... Okay, this is it, you know, and that's kind of what I joined up for. You know, this is the Marine Corps. We're going to fight and drink beer and carry on like fools. Back then, uh, Marine in trouble, that was the word, you know, and uh, <laughs> next, there's uh, a brouhaha. Mm -hmm. so, he was my NCIC, so I figured I was good to go. I don't think anybody really got hurt. I know there was a pool to, a queue or two that were being swung at people, so... That was, that was interesting. We were working 24 on, 48 off, those kind of shifts. It was really good. Had uh, knuckleheads that discharge their weapons accidentally on the stairwell, on the ladder well. 32nd Street is the armpit of San Diego. All these ships and all the squids and all the Marines. and But we got along and it was, it's very interesting. You know, I'm a young Lance Corporal. 
a year or so in the Marine Corps and you don't make diddly squat. I think my paychecks were 198 bucks, something to that effect. And I was living in what's called Nasty City, National City in, in base housing. I, you didn't have a lot. Day-to-day -day job was either patrol, gate duty, but most of the time I was in the brig, working in the brig, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. working in the brig. And because uh, you were 5811, 5831. Yeah, it was kind of a combo sort of thing. Most of the confinees were guys that went AWOL and just did stupid things. Every now and then you get somebody that went to the big house in, in uh, Leavenworth and he would be in cell block. But you, you had cell block, you had dorm uh, one, two, and three different levels. You know, once they got better, they got to the minimum custody and maximum custody and so on and so forth because they, uh, they weren't in there that long. So it, it was the best times and worst times. I remember we had a some one one sailor took his life who's swinging in the cell block and uh, in his cell young sergeant tried to resuscitate and he was long dead but it was quite a brave try this is military right mm -hmm. so one of the things that you would find in the cell block these guys that come in some of them have a little bit of a bug called crabs <laughs> they'd have their skivvies on and all their gear would be washed and put in a bag and you knew that the, the reason the bag was out there was because he had crabs so as soon as you walk by if you were in working in cell block you start, you start scratching and itching and everything else i mean it's just like and that's where i learned the reality that you never throw toothpicks in the toilet because crabs can pull vault we had a couple of our own marines but Back then, they would be sent over to Miramar, which was a Navy base at the time, and the, and they were put in that cell block. And we worked with them. I mean, some of the guys that they had been working there, and then they decided to go AWOL. Or, and I should rephrase that. It's not a brig, because in 74, 75, Admiral Zumwalt changed the brig philosophy, because when I first started, it was red line. So red line is confinee come over here and they run as quick as they can and they stand on that red line. They got rid of that and they went to a correctional philosophy. So it was a correctional center. They really didn't have opportunity to, to separate themselves because it was still the military and the military was not going to let that stuff happen. We were not as sweet, if you will, as corrections, uh, that, you, that you, you dealt with. You were in a, a, a dorm with everybody else and we did not let you do that. But it was an interesting time because 74, 75, 76, there were a lot of issues with race. They dapped and stuff like that and in line and you wouldn't let, it, let them do that. But they wanted to, some other things that were not good I'm no, I was not a fan of Zumwalt. He, that was when he let the, the sailors start growing their beards out and they started looking really raggedy in the correctional facility. They were not allowed to do that. So we, as we say in the military and the Marine Corps in particular, we were just different shades of green. And, and some of the yard time for the PT and such was close order drill, all in. Half right, left right, <laughs> and uh, that that helped. But it wasn't that gr big of a facility, and there wasn't just that that opportunity for them to do that. And we we kind of put the kibosh on that. The training was always horrible. First time I ever fell asleep standing up, but <laughs> uh, but we did riot control training monthly, and we never had the time I was there. We had, we never had a riot. Now, as I indicated, there were some sailors, Marines that went onward for serious crimes and they went to Leavenworth to spend their time after they were adjudicated. So, um, those guys were always separated. They were isolated and, and, and they never got out of cell block. I went to Millington, Tennessee for avionics training. The Marine Corps, you should be aware, it doesn't always provide you with exactly what you want. You kind of get <laughs> what's available. I wanted to be an ATC, air traffic controller. Ended up 
avionics. You go through BEE, basic electricity, electronics. Most people are, are forwarded on from there, from that A school to their, their duty station. But I was offered a, an advanced electronics school. So I went to that. That was like a, a seven or eight month course. Again, I loved Millington. I loved, in fact, I, I keep telling my wife, let's move to Tennessee. I was there for quite a while because I had all those courses and in the middle had a uh, baby girl. So that was kind of cool. It was a good time. I, I worked with a lot of kids in uh, in my church there, uh, did a lot of camping um, with the kids, a lot of shooting. There's rivers galore, so you go out shooting water moccasins and that sort of stuff. Memphis was like 20 miles away. The electronics courses were some of the best. It was quite interesting. You know, 79, when Iran went off the the deep end, we had a lot of Iranian pilots and people in those classes with me. And one day they just kind of left because things were changing in Iran. That was an interesting situation. They, one day they were there and the next day they weren't. So they were called back and Ayatollah Khomeini took over in Iran. And that was a very interesting thing. But the Marine Corps was very good. It was some difficult classes. I do remember having to use a slide rule. Couldn't tell you anything about a slide rule now. Why they didn't let us use a calculator, I don't know. I got through those classes. They were difficult. Some guys were a lot more smarter than I, but uh, I did get through them. Early 78, uh, Altel Toro. And I was uh, stationed at headquarters of maintenance squadron because I was I-level. There's O-level, which are the people that work on the planes on the on the runway they'll take uh, boxes off or put them on you know whatever's wrong with them and then they would send them to us and we would get down to the repair we would do the the repair down to a diode resistor whatever the case may be back in the day before they had uh, motherboards that you could just throw away and repair so we would make sure everything worked and then we'd send it back to the line and they would put it back in the airplane as i indicated and i i, I I love sports, so I in the Marine Corps you're always PTN and and you know so every day was a, a basketball game. Started playing racquetball there, uh, golfing, and you know the the good things, of course. And my family enjoyed it. It was really good. Things were great. Things were good. I I was uh, on a fast track. I made staff sergeant under six. I remember later on some of my troops when I was a staff sergeant as NCIC of. Uh, a work center, one of my troops, I don't want to go shoot a rifle. You know, I, I'm this. I know how to fix that. And I open up the Marine Corps manual to the first page and said, every Marine is a rifleman. You know, you will do this. This is, mm. they were kind of, uh, I don't want to say snooty or anything, but they, they had their own agenda. They wanted to do their job. A lot of them get, got jobs working electronics out in town and that sort of stuff. First deployment, 79, um, I was in, in Japan, and Japan was fabulous. It sounds like it was a pretty good life for me, and it was. Yeah. Uh, Japan was great. Going up to, uh, I was stationed in Iwakuni. Hiroshima was 45 clicks away. I bought a car. You could buy a car in Japan for 100 bucks as long as it had Japanese compulsory insurance, JCI. And you could drive to Hiroshima and sit on the sit on the riverbed and go through the Ginza and stuff like that. It was great. Kintai Castle and sitting down. One of the great experiences, first time there, going to Kintai. And it's a beautiful place and it's Cherry Blossom Festival. So it's gorgeous. And you get up there and the Japanese were so welcoming, sit around in big circles and they have these bottles about this big of sake. And that's the first time I tried sake and it was yeah, put hair on my chest. I can say. <laughs> but, you know, you sit there with them and you, you drink and you, you don't really know the language, but there's a, that camaraderie there, the communication. I just really enjoyed all of it. And then back in 1980, deployed in March of 80, early March, and was gone about 10 months. Um, that was during the Iranian thing, because that's when 
all the stuff hit the fan there with uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, and they took our 52 hostages. So that was an interesting time. Stationed aboard the USS Midway, which is historic in itself. The Midway, just for those of you that have never served aboard an aircraft carrier, before the the nukes, they were just CVs, CV-41s, uh, uh, the Midway, Midway Magic. Anything you drank had JP-5 in it because the water tanks and the JP-5 tanks were interchangeable. So once one was emptied, if you needed water, you put put it in there. It didn't matter. It was JP-5 and vice versa. So <laughs> in everything, you know, you drink bug juice and it had this coat of JP-5 on it, coffee, whatever. And of course, everything was horrible. So the first couple of weeks aboard ship, everybody was clamoring to go to the head. We got out there uh, on station like early April. And in April, the aborted rescue attempt, uh, Jimmy Carter, and I'll never understand this, an, an Annapolis graduate, a Naval officer said, let's have all the branches do this together in the desert. People were getting hurt. Um, that sort of stuff. Anyhow, so we floated about, didn't really even get off the ship again for a while. We've been on station at like three months and uh, they said, hey, we're going to go get a bit of a holiday. So we float down to uh, Mombasa, Kenya. We're in Mombasa for about two days and then something happened. So instead of having our quick holiday, which we were back out to sea, back on station. I want to say it was like late June, early July, 1980. We're, it's uh, 2005, 8.05 in the evening. Uh, we were running dark. The captain of the ship was Hoagie Carmichael. Had our radar on, obviously. I mean, we're a thousand foot long ship, you know, 17 stories deep, I believe. And we get hit broadside by a Panamanian freighter. That was the the thing that rocked the world. We got hit a uh, uh, port in the locks plant. So if you know anything about a, sh a ship, um, you come in on the quarter deck and up above are, are some of the work centers. And then just below it, right equal with the quarter deck is the locks plant. That's liquid oxygen. We get hit right there. I mean, a gaping hole. Right away, they had to secure the hatch because the chemicals, the ship would have blown up. People got thrown around. That was the first time I hurt my leg. I got thrown off a ladder well onto the quarter deck and I screwed up my knee big time. The sad thing there was secured the hatch. When we got hit, immediately one of the, the sailors there in the locks plant was killed. The others that were working there were on, on the radio to the captain and he's saying, we're going to do everything we can. We're going to do everything we can. And the poor guys in the locks plant knew that they were going to die. And they did because you couldn't open the hatch. Airplanes, even though they were tied down on the tie downs, thrown a, a miss. They were upside down, cattywonker. People were injured, obviously. How that happened, nobody. And, and how the captain didn't get relieved. He didn't get relieved. That's an amazing thing. So that's way above my pay grade, obviously. I was the NCIC of the AMD for VMFP3. We had over 5,000 men on the quarter deck ready to abandon ship. If you can imagine that, everybody was there ready to abandon ship. We were there for a couple hours. <laughs> if a ship goes down, uh, you're not going to make it out of there because the vacuum is going to suck you down. Mm. So I... That was my first real thought that, yeah, this is it, you know, and I had a strange sense of calmness about me on that one. And I was telling my troops, yeah, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. They're like, yeah, right. Yeah. Mm. You know, everybody, everybody knows aboard a ship, you know, because everybody knows their role. Everybody knows the role. You know where your firefighting station is. You know when to go here. You know what to do within within a couple minutes. Boom, everybody was there. I had all my troops at uh, their stations. And once I got word, we're down there and that sort of thing. We stood for about two hours and they were able to air it up. And the next morning you could see the the mess. I mean, 
It was a mess because we had our F-4s, the Navy, and I guess they were F-14s by then. This was 1980, yeah. A-6, you name it. I mean, it was a mess. So we think, well, <laughs> after you do all the calculations and you say, uh, I guess we're going to have to go home. I guess this cruise is over. Well, we shuttled back, made it to the PI. We were in uh, Subic for, I don't know, a month. They did the repairs, and we're back out to sea. <laughs> People would talk about needing traffic cops out there because the, the Russians were out there, we were out there. It was just all kinds of sort of stuff going on. That cruise didn't end until the end of November. I think I got home the day before Thanksgiving. I think the major reason was Ronald Reagan was elected, and Ronald Reagan said, um, you release the 52 hostages or, or else. They released the 52 hostages one hour before he, he assumed command. We were in the Gulf, and I was aboard the USS Abraham Lincoln, which is a CVN, so the water was good, and you didn't have to take sea showers and all that good stuff. That was my first time I catted on and catted off, and that was, that was a trip in itself. That was an e-ticket ride. That was when the movie A Few Good Men came out. They showed it, and the troops would watch it, and so I was down in the chief's uh, quarters. That's where I, I stayed. And I watched the movie. And the next day there was a change of command. And a commander, the AIMD commander, he came down in his dress whites. He's kind of a friend of mine because we lifted weights together. And he had been a Marine before he transitioned to the Navy and became an officer. And I said, so you came down here in your faggoty white uniform. And this is a big guy, right? In the first place. Plus he's the commander. And he looked at me like, what the hell did you just say? And you could have heard a pin drop in, in, in production control. And I said, sir, just, you know, if you will, I don't think you saw the movie that they showed last night. Take your time, see the movie before we discuss this. <laughs> so about three weeks later, we're in Dubai and he was as drunk as a skunk. And he said, boy, I scared the hell out of you, didn't I? He said, because he'd seen the movie. I was like, man, what, what possessed me to say that? So. <laughs> 21 years, so I came back from the Gulf, as I indicated. And um, I wanted to have a kind of a mellow tour my last couple of years. Selected for Master Sergeant. They said, we have a good deal for you in Okinawa. I said, nah, you can take your deal. But I'd already um, been given an opportunity. I went to work for an organization called Teen Challenge, a Christian drug and alcohol rehab place. And it was okay. But man, when you're places with people who you're counting on them to take care of you and you take, uh, take care of them, you know, covering their six, knowing everything about them because... When you have people working for you, your mom, dad, sister, brother, you're everything. And and it was a screeching change. Uh, I kind of missed combat a little bit. During my time in the Corps, after I hurt my knee in Iran, I finally blew it out and I'd had like six or seven surgeries. So you, you, I couldn't exercise like I used to. And so that was difficult. So I got that job. And I was working and I felt satisfied with it, but it didn't fit the, you know, the, the check marks. And then my mother was diagnosed with cancer. So, I mean, this is right after I retired, 95. I, as a matter of fact, I had gone home I had, uh, for two weeks from the Gulf, uh, 93, because we thought she was going to die then. So anyhow, she got, she had gotten worse, really something that you deal with. When you spent 20 some years, this is a lot of who you are. There's a verse in the Bible, and I, I've shared this, that I'm not a Marine. I'm not this. I'm not that. It's in him who I live and move and have my being. I believe that. Being a Marine is part of the tapestry of who I am and that camaraderie and, and that family. So I miss that. Uh, my mother was sick. And then I'm going to Las Vegas to visit my mom with my wife and my aunt. We're driving back. We stopped in Barstow for something to eat. And I said, you know, Andy, it's always been a mystery to me. A lot taller than the rest to my brother, my sisters. 
they can't walk and chew gum. You know, I played sports and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, it's so weird to me. And my aunt, who was a very sweet, loving lady, said, well, you dummy. Virgil wasn't your father. It was this guy. That's how I found out. Been less than like six months that I'd retired from the Marine Corps. My mother's dying. So I'm not going to approach her and say, yo, what's up, right? I find this out. Well, that kicked my butt. I was, I was honestly, I was lost for a bit. So I'm trying to get hold of, I was born in Pennsylvania, a small town in Pennsylvania. I made a couple phone calls and I found one, one person. So my real name is, my last name is Cameron, like 72% Scottish and the rest English and Irish. Even have my Cameron challenge coin, but I couldn't connect with anybody. Well, in retrospect, I found out that he had died in 91 anyhow. He'd been in the Army, was a pilot, and things like that. Gerald Cameron. The years passed, and then Ancestry came out. I finally did Ancestry.com, and I find the Cameron clan. So my wife and I go to New York, and we meet up with my brother and my sister, and, you know, uh, some other family members, and spend a few days with them, and it was... It was like, like we'd known each other all our lives. Went home. This was the summer of 19 or something like that. A few months later, I went back to New York. They live up upstate New York. We're sitting around the table talking about, well, I was born here. Yeah, I was born here. You know, all the things are falling together. And I got a weird middle name. It's Woodrow. Okay. There, the world knows. I always thought it was from my grandfather, my, my maternal grandfather, Roe Pate. We're sitting there talking, and, and I just knew Gerald Cameron was my grand, was my real father because of all the ancestry. But then my brother Paul says, yeah, that Gerald Woodrow Cameron. And it's like that sealed the deal, you know, even though ancestry and the DNA and all that stuff. But anybody else with the middle name of Woodrow, oh, my God. So my mom or he, I don't even know if he knew about me. Somebody put a little clue in there. So uh, that kind of sealed the deal. But it's been a fantastic relationship. We've done a cross-country trip. We went to visit our great-great-great-grandfather who died at Andersonville. He was a Union soldier and died of dysentery, like 40,000 people did there. And so, I mean, I've been back there a number of times. They've been out here. And to be honest with you, it's like a it's fantastic. I, I've got a nephew, Gerald. He's a fireman for Ladder 10, which is the firehouse directly across from where the Twin Towers was. That firehouse, I've gone through there, and that was the doors were blown off and stuff because of that. Paul's wife, Betty, who has been doing all this background stuff, and they had just done the DNA stuff. And Paul said, I was in bed, and she came into the bedroom and said, your father, <laughs> do you know what he did? To go back to 1995, I'm working, I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. I'm doing what I feel is a good thing. It was a good thing. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm helping people. Struggling with my mom and then that, and with the separation from the Marine Corps. You just didn't see all the guys. I mean, it, it truly is a brotherhood. So that affected me for a couple of years. I did that, and then my wife went back. Uh, she's a nurse practitioner, went back to school, and on the Marine Corps retirement pay and what I was getting paid, it was just not enough to, to do it. So I went to work uh, for my brother-in-law, but again, I was a business degree and stuff like that, but I was bored to tears. Honestly, I missed my gun. <laughs> so late 96 early 97, I went to work for the Department of Justice. All of a sudden, you know, time does heal a lot. And I started to go back. I kind of forgot about that, you know, I had another father because I couldn't find anybody or anything. And my mom had passed. As we as men, and sometimes particularly as military, just compartmentalize. I'm DOJ, um, uh, enjoying that. I went to the Federal Academy in Glencoe, Georgia, and then I got back and I was an immigration officer. 
And I did that for a while. And then I helped set up uh, what's called the global pass thing. Now, you know, I want to do physical stuff. So I became the non-deadly, uh, non-deadly force instructor for the district. And I love that. You know, you're teaching people. We, we taught Gracie. We taught handholds, taught gun protection, taught the use of force continuum, that sort of stuff. Mm. Plus, you know, nothing more fun than tasering people and, <laughs> and pepper spray. And, yeah. You know, I did that. And then 9-11 happened. Mm. And I can tell you the moment, as most of us can, I can tell you the moment where I was when Kennedy was shot and Robert Kennedy was shot, Martin Luther King. But uh, when 9-11 happened, I was working at the Fed building in L.A. And I was taking the train up and I'm sitting there waiting for the train. And I get a call from a good friend, John. Man, something happened. Somebody blew up. Something blew up on the, the Twin Towers. And then my daughter, hey, Twin Tower, one of them was blown up by a plane, you know. And I'm like, as everybody, wow, was this just a... And then I get the call back. The other one was just taken out. And I'm still, I'm going to work. Well, I've got my gun and I got pepper. I, you know, I've got my whole tool belt. I'm like, oh, this is, this is a gaggle. And I had never, you know, I always kept my gun strapped and blah, blah, blah. I had the strap off and I had my hand on the whole, st- the whole time on, on, on the, yeah, I, I, I didn't know what was going on, you yeah. know, and you're hearing stuff. And I finally made it to the Fed building, which is right off the train from Union Station there in LA. It's all secured, you know, so went back home and watched it and wept. And, um, that's when Homeland opened up and, and, was asked if I wanted to go down there, but it was an interesting thing. It was only like maybe three miles from my house and an automatic, you know, up to 13 or something, just 13, which calculates to a lot more money than mm-hmm. I, right? And plus Monday through Friday sort of stuff. But as an asylum refugee officer, which was quite interesting, uh, the schooling for that was interesting. I, did legal assessments. I had one go to the Ninth Circuit Court, you know, for everybody that I would interview. And then my travels were crazy. Africa, Asia, Turkey. I was working around the world in refugee camps. And that was a very interesting time. But the refugee camp, so I'll give you an example. Uh, (laughs) I'll give you an example. Dadaab. Dadaab has 500,000 people living in it. It's in Kenya, 50 miles uh, southwest of, um, Somalia. I've been to Somalia. I had a nice little stop over there in October of 93, by the way, <laughs> when that stuff happened. So you go in there, um, you're, you're very much separated. You have, um, we, we went under official passports. I worked out of the embassy in Nairobi. Um, the one that was blown up a few years before that worked out of the embassy. And then we would go into the camp itself and, it's horrible. I mean, these, there are people that are born and die in those camps. Mm. Education is a, is a horrible, just hoping, but there are always people out there that are, are doing good things. But on a daily basis, we get up, we'd go in there, we would have a certain amount of cases that we do and we'd read through them. And the, the, the idea was to, in an interview, to find out if they're telling the truth. Are they who they say they are? Because we would find there would be people who sneak in the camp. They know this person's going to be interviewed. They would kill that person, get rid of him, and they would go in with the family, and the family would be under threat of them getting killed. They would have to acquiesce to this person, and this person could be a terrorist. It could be anything. So you had to ask questions. How long have you mar- married? Which kid is this one? What happened to Bobby? Well, Bobby died yesterday. It was very interesting. And again, I go back to my foundation. Every case I did, I would pray about because man, oh man, I, I was, I believed. And the reason I even quit that job because I was making good money, it was it was a good deal, was because there was more concern for the refugees and asylees and others 
than they were for the American citizens. And I swore to uphold the Constitution of the United States and to support and defend that and the people of the United States above that. So I, I had to make sure every, everybody that I saw was who they were. It was, it was very interesting. I worked in one called Kakuma up in, uh, right in the Rift Valley up by Sudan, Ethiopia. And you could see, you know, you're going back thousands of years uh, because the people are full on tribal gear. You think America's bad ladies and gentlemen out there say we're racist. I watched 80 year old women get up at five o'clock in the morning and start digging for water. Why the men would sit around and smoke cigarettes, you know, and they would do all the work. We have a lot to learn. That's why traveling is good and seeing other places and other mm. things. My role was to interview and find out what was going on, if they were who they said they were. And if they got a refugee status, they could come to America and live in America. And every country in the world has a certain amount of refugees. And they can come, they learn, and they make choices. And they can go on to be citizens. And uh, in the case of Ilhan Omar... Uh, whether I like her or not is really not important, but she came here at nine and she's a United States Congresswoman. They can do some good things. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'll always, always remember in this is that these poor people would come in and, and I, uh, I alluded to this, you know, that first of all, the guys that have more than one wife. So you have to say you got to choose which wife you want which is heart-wrenching. Polygamy Ooh. is not allowed in the United States. And they'd come in and they'd have eight kids, nine kids, whatever, and from what I'm seeing. And then I read it and said, wait a minute, you're supposed to have 10 of them. What happened to this one? He died yesterday. The fatalism is, is unbelievable. And they died of malaria, of AIDS, uh, starvation. It was horrible. And little kids would be raped. Life is tough. Life is tough. We're so blessed here. It was an interesting time. It was a good time. It was a rough time to see some of these people, what they go through. And it, it certainly creates in you that, uh, that, uh, that thank thankfulness. My favorite one, though, um, was working in Istanbul. <laughs> I worked in Istanbul in 07 for a couple of months. Turkey's fabulous. My wife came over after we concluded with our work. And we went to Cappadocia and that's where the Apostle Paul did all of his books. And so that, that's very cool. Um, nice. I wasn't in a refugee camp there. They would bring the refugees from Syria and Iraq. I did catch a, an Iraqi there who said, uh, never been in jail. Uh, I said, I did a lot of research and I found out he'd been in jail, been in jail for murder. And I said, well, you said you weren't in jail. He said, well, Okay, I went to jail, but that was because Saddam Hussein sent me there. For what, you know? And well, I I, I stole some, uh, or no, it was political. I said, well, that's not what I found. I killed three people, and, you know. Finally, he said, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you feel good. I caught a terrorist at my office in Anaheim. He had multiple passports, and so where are you from? Blah blah blah. What did you do? Why are you applying for asylum? And, you know, you, you have a nexus, uh, race, religion, political opinion, gender, that sort of thing. And he'd tell me, and I saw his passport, and I did some research in, in, in text, and, and it, which are some of the computer programs, that, the criminal computer programs, the law enforcement. It didn't come up, so we went. I, I said, I'll be right back. I had another officer keeping an eye on him. I went in and checked the his passport and you know you find things wait, wait a minute this number here has been altered and then we found out another passport another and he had uh, yeah wow. so it was fun then i had fun i worked with the uh alcohol tobacco and firearms there was two brothers that were coming back and forth from mexico and they were bringing drugs and they were doing stuff in fresno so they asked me to come and I interviewed him one day and that day they placed some trackers on their vehicles and then I brought them back the next day and discussed them and that's when they went up to 
they had a warrant. They opened up, found all the stuff, and came back in and arrested him. So it was some fun stuff. But, you know, going back to the Marine Corps, if I may, when I was in Iran, we went longer and we were supposed to, and I had been married. Well, my wife and I drew apart. She had a situation while I was gone. And I want to say this because it's not all fun and games. Um, you know, when you're gone a long time, stuff happens. And when I got back, my wife was honest and said, look, I had an affair. This was back in like 81 or whatever. And we've been married, what, you know, 10 years or whatever. And um, this is where the problem comes, you know. Okay, I'm this. I can deal with this. I can put it here and move on. And then we went to counseling a little bit. But what happened is my heart hardened. I got, I don't know if I got angry. I just got disillusioned, disappointed. And because of my hardness of my heart, we ended up divorcing and such. And that hurts a lot of people. The military can create that. You got to understand that when you're, when you're gone for long periods of time, you got to guard your, your heart, your family, you got, you know, and, and she was a good woman. She passed a few years ago. I mean, we were junior high school sweethearts mm -hmm. and stuff, you know, she was a good person. And, and I take a lot of blame as much as I love the core. Some of it was counter. You put one foot in front of the other, and that's, that's one of the good things you learn in the Marine Corps. Also, another thing that I think is good about the Marine Corps that I think people should know, that you PT every day in the Marine Corps, and it becomes ingrained in you. It's difficult. Um, I've had enough knee surgeries that I, you know, I got to take my shoes off to count, you know, use my toes. Yeah. Of course, that hurts your back, and I just had shoulder surgery, but you still got to do something. And in the military, I think, uh, puts that in you. And that's a good thing. And mm -hmm. America, you need to be PTN. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you have an opportunity to serve, serve. Nothing better. And travel. See the world. I travel to India. I don't know if I shared that with you. I take water devices to India, do missions, medical missions trip with my wife, trips. And you know, if you can reach out to others and give back, it's a good thing but it also makes you realize how blessed you are.